Hello and welcome to another episode of Extraordinary Interviews with Ordinary People. On today's episode, I interview my wife's Aunt Deborah about her time as a producer at New Line Cinema. And we also touch on her childhood and her time traveling abroad. I hope you enjoy today's episode, which will begin right after a message from our sponsors. Today's episode brought to you by Boys to Men, helping babies get made since 1985. Today's episode is also brought to you by Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Turtles in a Half Shell. So this is my wife's Aunt Deborah. What was uh, early childhood for you like? You had a lot of brothers and sisters? Yeah, so by the time I was eight, I think I had uh, uh, four little brothers and sisters. There were five of us. So we were all pretty close in age, or about one and two years apart, each of us. So it was uh, it was fun, you know. We were all pretty tight, and, and uh, we left New York, where we all grew up, when I was in third grade, and came to California, and we didn't know anybody. Uh-huh. So we all had to uh, bond together. So you grew up in New York. Well, until I was in third grade, and then California. Yeah. For the rest of the time, but yeah. What made you guys move to California? My dad got transferred. It's a job transfer. Oh, for his work? Yeah. That's cool. And um, was California a big change? What was that like coming over to California from New York? Well, we left New York in February, where I think we had six feet of snow on the sides <laughs> of the roads. We drove, we took about five days to drive west. We hit Pacific Coast Highway in Redondo Beach and stopped. So, yeah, it was a pretty dramatic difference. That was really, you know, it was awesome. I mean, literally, it was the days of Gidget and all of that. So we were living the California dream. What kind of of work did your dad do? He was in aerospace. Oh, aerospace. That's fancy. Yeah. He's a smart guy, huh? He he was and still is, yeah. Yeah. What was it like um, going to school out here, changing to school? Was it a big difference in school, too, or...? Yeah, it was really different. I mean, I was never fond of school anyway. Um, <laughs> New York was going to school in big, you know, big brownstone buildings and, uh, you know, lots of kids. And then when I came out to California, it was just a little different. You know, the schools were out in the open. There weren't, you know, you didn't have to be concerned about snow and weather and that sort of thing. Yeah. So we had snowsuits the week before. The week we got to California and got involved in school, we were going to school in, you know, shorts and T-shirts. <laughs> That's crazy. So, That's a big change. Yeah, it was a pretty, pretty different uh, world for sure. But you enjoyed the change, though? Um, yeah, eventually. I mean, I think I went to three different third grades. I went to the third grade in New York, the third grade by my house, and then my parents wanted me to go to the Catholic school, so they enrolled me in the Catholic school for the last, like, three months before summer. Oh, okay. And then by fourth grade, I went into a different Catholic school. So <laughs> four schools within the matter of six months. That, that was exciting. Yeah, it's hard to, Not. Keep, hard to keep friends like that. <laughs> yeah. So what were you like in high school? What was high school like for you? Were you like a, a nerdy kid, popular kid? What were you like in high school? Mm, you know, I always say to people I was goth before there was goth. Um, <laughs> absolutely hated school hated high school to this day have not a not a single fond memory of high school it's a a time i just assume not repeat i just didn't like it 
Um, Did you not like the social aspect of it or like the schooling, the teachers? You know, I think all the above. I mean, I lived in my head. I was constantly writing and listening to music and reading. And I just had this very sort of internal, very active life. And school just basically got in the way. Yeah. It was just a a constant annoyance. (laughs) You and me both. uh, Yeah, I wasn't a fan either. (laughs) Suffered through it and uh, never even went to my high school graduation, finished my last test and turned around and walked away. Never looked back. That's crazy. Did you go to college at all? I did. I graduated from Pepperdine. I took a couple years off and I went to Pepperdine University, got my degree in uh, business administration and uh, with a minor in like economics and finance. Yeah, I was... uh perusing through your IMDB today and uh, I saw that they had Pepperdine University or not maybe it was your Facebook but that was about it you don't put a lot of information out there I think your last post on Facebook was like four years ago or something yeah I was like oh I'll ask her about I'll ask her about this but then I was like wait that's from 2017 (laughs) I don't do a lot of posting um you know I rarely go on Facebook it's more just to keep up with you know, pictures of your kids and uh, <laughs> family photos, that sort of thing. But yeah. yeah, I'm not a big social media person, although I, I'm supposed to be. Yeah, but, uh, you at least got to get your picture on IMDb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that can't be that tough. I'll do it for you. I'll add it on there. <laughs> um, so you said you went for business in college? Yeah, so, you know, as I think most of us do, I went through 19 different degree changes and then decided, you know, it's pretty good with numbers and had a decent head with logic um so I just get finished up with a business degree and I took an economics class in like my sophomore year and loved it so you know kind of kept on that track well that's cool when you were in high school you said you did a lot of writing yeah so I always loved I mean I, I music and reading were the two things that I lived for and so I used to write a lot um you know create worlds and create characters and just um you know, not so much journaling as it was just, uh, you know, sort of fantasy worlds kind of uh-huh. thing. I used to love to do that. I think it was just a way to uh, get out of my high school head. And yeah. Like, you know, there's got to be something better out there. Kind of like an escape. Yeah, exactly. And I just, I, you know, music in the 70s, early 70s was just so spectacular. So mm. I was a huge fan of, you know, folk music, Jackson Brown and the Eagles and Linda Ronstadt, Joan Baez, and Joni Mitchell, and I mean, all these fantastic musicians, so I just used to lose lose myself into their music, and, you know, I always say that every single event that happened to me prior to the age of 25 was accompanied by, by a Jackson Brown song. It's like uh, a movie soundtrack? <laughs> exactly. The soundtrack of my life, for sure. What kind of books were you into? Tree like sci-fi, or... Kind of... No, I, I loved biographies. Oh, okay. so I used to read a lot of biographies, but also, um, you know, Once and Future King, that sort of thing. Things that were sort of big and, you know, historical, but again, completely different worlds. So anything that, uh, you know, took me to a place I didn't know. You know, I was a big fan of Isaac Dennison out of Africa. You know, those are the kinds of things that I used to love to read. I read, um, early on, I would read Marguerite Henry, you know, books about horses and living in, living in, um, uh, back in the time of Wyoming, the horses and everything. That's um, cool. Yeah. 
And then you said you had a pretty good relationship with your family. What did you guys used to do on like a? Did you guys have like a Sunday outing or anything? What did you guys used to do in the house for fun? Or were yeah, you, so or were you kind of a loner with your family too, or did you? No, it was, it was somewhat impossible to to do that. No, I mean, <laughs> you know, Sundays were always you know big family dinner, big Italian Catholic family. So, um, you know, we'd get up, we'd go to church, come back, you know, start prepping for dinner, and uh, you know, we were all pretty close because there were a lot of us. Uh huh. And. Um, Again, you know, we didn't know a lot of people when we first got here, but then obviously everybody made friends. And, uh, you know, just, uh, it was like a very typical suburban middle class upbringing. Yeah, that's nice. You know, we lived on a cul-de-sac and you yeah. know, we would have the Helms Bakery man come by and the milkman come by. <laughs> You know, the hand-delivered post stuff, postman and all that kind of stuff. So there was just a lot of activity in the neighborhood. Yeah, that sounds really nice. And then um, when you moved to, or when you went to college, you still stayed at your house, or did you live on campus or anything? Or I, I don't really know how college works. Yeah, no, <laughs> I pretty much went straight to work, and uh-huh. then would do um, you know classes uh, sometimes in the evening. A lot of time, you know, I just do classes around work. So I pretty much fell into the film business at a pretty young age. Oh, yeah. And uh, had to, you know, I would prefer to work than do the full time school thing. I think I did full time school for one semester. <laughs> yeah. And then that was that. So, how, how did you get into the film industry? What was your first forte? Or, or rather, like, when did you think this is something I can do or kind of start gravitating towards that? You know, it's funny. People ask me all the time how I got into the film business to see if it's something, an entree they could use themselves. And I'm like, no, nobody (laughs) who's in the film business, (laughs) everybody has a different story. So um, I was actually trying to, I was getting a degree in economics because I wanted to run the railroads. I was fascinated with trains, wanted to run railroads. And one of the degrees that I could use to catapult me to that level was a degree in economics and finance and understand the business operations of railroads. So I was, this was the one semester I was actually in school full time. I was doing a work study program with Wells Fargo Bank. And one of the jobs I had was to, you know, people would call in and they would have a certain amount of money sitting in their bank account. And those were the days where interest rates were, you know, very high. And so they would sell the money to the bank for the weekend and the bank would mess with it and do their thing and use the money for various things and then sell it back to the person the next you know, week. And they would make a certain amount of interest. That's crazy. So a lot of the people that would do that were producers who had license fees from the network. They're in the middle of making a movie or a TV movie. And so they would have, you know, half a million sitting in a bank account. So rather than just have it sit there doing nothing, they would sell it to the bank, make 20 grand, that would help pay for certain things, and then the next, you know, Monday or Tuesday, they'd buy it back. And, uh, you know, it worked for everybody. So in the course of doing that, there were a couple of producers that I got to know pretty well, because, you know, I'm just handling their money every week. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, they started to, you know, offer me jobs here and there. And one producer... Uh, worked for Dick Clark's company 
And so he kept trying to get me to come work with them, which I, I really wasn't all that interested in doing. And I figured, well, you know, I'm going to school. I, you know, I'm getting paid a decent enough salary. I can live on this at the moment. Yeah. Um, and uh, he started telling me what my salary would be if I came and worked for them. And I'm like, I'm kind of making that every month anyway. He said, no, 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 that would be your weekly salary. Oh, wow. And I thought, <laughs> huh, okay. <laughs> so I went ahead and uh, did that job and basically kind of just fell into the film business that way. And I stayed at Dick Clark's company for a while, but it really wasn't what I wanted to do. And so one of the accountants on a movie that they were doing said hey my assistant just left and I'm looking for an assistant would you be interested in coming to work for me so I'm like yeah I'm not really being in the office whatever why not we'll give that a try so yeah I did that for a couple of movies and then he got this gentleman got sick and the producer we were working for said hey do you want to just finish this movie and I'm like yeah sure had no idea what I was doing really <laughs> totally ill prepared to take that on but I did it yeah, and uh, stayed with that company for about six years. Did thirty or so TV movies with them, yeah. and uh, it was great. You yeah, know, learned a ton. And by that time, I think I might have been twenty-five. That's <laughs> you know, crazy. Something like that, twenty-five, twenty-six. Yeah. So yeah. I really fell into it. I did. I never proactively looked for a job in the film business. Well, I've heard that's kind of how the film business and like the radio business is. Is like you just kind of got to show up. Just keep showing up and be nice to people and keep showing up and eventually you'll the guy will be sick and you'll take his job and <laughs> you just kind of yeah. move up the ladder that way just by showing up every day. It's so true. I mean, so many people I know that are in the film business kind of got into it for you know through some bizarre form of serendipity. They just happen to be at the right place at the right time. Yeah. And there you go. You know, it's <laughs> like crazy. you're suddenly in the film business, which is really annoying to this film school students who spend you know hundreds of thousands of dollars and try to break in and whatever and it's very frustrating so i can understand why people get annoyed <laughs> yeah for sure. when they hear this but the truth of the matter is it, it's you know i'd say at least 50 percent of the people i know fell into it as opposed to proactively sought out that job that they ended up in it's kind of true with the a lot of other jobs too if you just show up and keep yeah. working every day eventually you'll move up the ladder to something better but what would you say then your job was were you in accounting or production or what were you so, doing yeah, with those I started, movies no i started um doing accounting and i always say to people i mean accounting sounds like the least sexiest job you could ever do on a movie and it, it probably is but if you think about it every single item on a film has a financial quotient attached to it whether it's a pencil or, uh, you know, a, a digital stick or a, uh -huh. you know, a camera lens or yeah. whatever. Um, and so as the, in the accounting department, you're dealing with 100% of that every single day. You're, you know, you're paying bills, you're writing purchase orders, you're vetting what is being spent on the movie. And so if you really want to get a very good, solid understanding of how a movie is made, there's no better place to be because you're touching everything you're yeah. exposed to every single component you could possibly be exposed to right you're seeing so all the jobs great, yeah it was a really great um training and because i always seemed to have a pretty good head for numbers anyway mm -hmm. um when you know i'd be 
in a meeting or something with the producer, whatever, we're talking about the budget of the film. Because I learned how to do budgets super early yeah. because I understood the numbers. So, um, you know, people would start asking questions and I'd be like, oh, no, no, here's how that works and here's why this is cost that way and this is why this is being done like that. And so because I understood the numbers and could talk you know, my way through those conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I pretty much got promoted up the ladder fairly quickly just because I understood what was going on. So I ended up as kind of like um, a director of production. I think that was my title, something like that. Yeah, when I was looking I on... basically uh, oversaw stuff. Yeah, when I was looking on IMDB, I mostly see executive in charge of production sounds fancy so 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 is that what you got into later more like the production side of it or is that all kind of this part and parcel the finance and production yeah i mean there it's kind of all interchangeable i mean i did i I was like the sort of head of production overseeing production for that tv company and then i wanted to go into features because i had done so many movies of the week and they were all kind of the same uh-huh. So I thought I'd try something different and uh, got a job doing, you know, a couple of features by this time as a full accountant out on my own. And uh, I had done so many projects in a row. I mean, literally, there was an 18-month period where I never even touched ground in L.A. I mean, I lived in L.A., but I was on the road on location so often. That's crazy. So by the time that 18-month period was over, I decided I wanted to take a break. And so I went to England to go see a friend of mine. And while I was there, I decided to go hit up uh, Kenya, wanted to. I'd always wanted to go to Africa. And so I went over there for about three weeks and just fell in love with it and stayed for about three months. So by the time I was uh, out of money, credit cards had been maxed. (laughs) I just could no longer afford to stay. I went ahead and came home and, you know, like the day after I got home, I got a phone call from somebody looking for an accountant to come do a movie for some fly-by-net company. I didn't know who they were, but I thought, okay, I'm broke. I'll go take this, even though I didn't really want to do accounting anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, take the check. I took that job. And, and pretty much by the end of that show, they said, look, we're starting a new production division. You know, we've done one movie that was pretty successful. We want to do a few more. Do you want to come in-house and just basically sort of help run production? And that's how I started working. That was New Line Cinema. And the movie they had done was Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, wow. So I started with them pretty early in their day. We had like 12 people working in an office that was like, you know, maybe two, 3,000 square foot office. And by the time I left, there were offices in L.A., offices in New York, and there were at least 250 people in the company, and, you know, the company was just thriving. So I was there for nine years and did, I think all told, I did about 80 movies with them between the stuff we produced in-house and the things we did that were acquisitions. You know, I'd oversee that, oversaw the television production Uh stuff. You said that was New Line Cinema? It was New Line Cinema. That's yeah. crazy. So it's like when they were starting out? Yeah. They so seem like I such did. a big company now. Well, at least to laymen like me, it seems like a big company. Yeah. No, at the time, it was just a very, very small small company with, like I said, offices on the, I can't remember, 12th floor or something mm-hmm. of the Robertson building mm-hmm. that we were on. And um, But yeah, we were doing, we had a super small staff, but we just were doing, you know, movies that just kept 
cranking out money. So I did Nightmare on Elm Street, three, four, five, six, and seven, and Critters, one, two, three, four, and House Party, one, two, three, four, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, one, two, three. And I mean, we were just churning out movie after sequel after sequel. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a couple movies I want to get into. You've done some of my, you've worked at least on some of my favorite movies. Um, but real quick, back to you said you lived in Kenya for three months. That's super crazy. Were you um, by yourself out there, or what? What was that like? Yeah, yeah. So I just um, trekked around. Uh, it was really fun because I had I was visiting my friend in England, and through again through pure serendipity, some guy called the place I was. I happened to be hanging out at, and uh, I, the person I was hanging out with wasn't home. And so he said, well, would you tell her that I need, I wanted to talk to her about the place in, in Nairobi. And I said, oh, Nairobi, I've always wanted to go there. In fact, I've been thinking I might head down there. I'm in England right now. And he said, well, you know, my English caretaker is not in town. I'd love to have a, an American presence there while I'm gone. If you want to come down, come, come stay. So I'm like, great, that sounds good. So I got to Kenya. This guy's somebody picked me up from where I was supposed to meet downtown Nairobi and he took me out to a place called Boardhog Ranch and I got to stay at Peter Beard's place That's so crazy. for a couple of weeks. It was amazing and he had a couple there that would be just lovely. They were Kikuyu but they didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any Swahili. <laughs> so we would communicate with stick figures and drawing stick figures in the dirt. Oh wow. And uh, I learned how to speak Swahili a little bit from them just to... Uh, just to get by but uh you know i just would get on the bus or take the train or whatever to different places and took a couple of tours but i liked being on my own that it was just yeah. such an amazing place and and then i took what was called the, at the time it's no longer the same thing but it was the night train to mombasa uh-huh. so i got in this train at nine o'clock at night and the sun was, or the moon was up, and it was just beautiful. And you take this 20 mile an hour steam train all the way from Nairobi through the Serengeti, all the way to the coast in Mombasa. And you're watching the elephants roaming, the giraffe roaming, and it was just like this magical, magical time. That is so cool. That so was great. It's yeah. Pretty wild that you were just up, and even England itself, you just, did you just fly to England and just, that's so crazy you could just go to other countries. I, I guess I'd be kind of nervous or scared to do that, especially so young. Well, you know, I was lucky because that's one of the things I learned in the film business because I was doing the accounting on these movies. I had, to, I was sort of like the advanced guard. So I'd fly into the town that we were shooting in and I'd have to set up the bank account and set up, you know, the offices and do certain things like that. So I was traveling a lot on my own anyway uh-huh. and, you know, just had to figure things out not just for me, but for the whole company. And and so I just was never afraid, you know, to yeah. travel alone. In fact, even to this day, I prefer traveling completely <laughs> by myself. You still like it? Then, yeah, you get to go places. And nobody's, you don't have to worry about, well, somebody's hungry now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have to stop and eat. Yeah. <laughs> or funny. I want to go over here to the left, and they want to go to the right. It's like, Yeah, so you really I get to prefer. do what you want to do. Yeah, yeah. Plus, I found because I try. I went to many different countries. I went to Greece. I went to a number of places, and I found that people are so friendly to people traveling on their own 
Uh-huh. Uh, whereas if you're traveling with somebody, you're, you seem to be a lot less approachable and oh, okay. people aren't as outgoing and helpful. So they kind of like the they kind of like the lone travelers. Yeah, that's cool. Man, that's so crazy, Kenya. That's so cool. And what other uh, have you been to? Any other standout countries? Because you try. This is all for the film industry, right? All this travel. Uh, not out of the country. No, no. The Kenya trip was totally from on my own. Of course, as I was there for on the third day, I think I'd come into Nairobi just to get some groceries and stuff, and been walking on the streets of downtown Nairobi, which was you know what. I don't know, halfway across the world. That's crazy. And I'm, I'm looking at my map, or I'm, I'm looking down, and somebody goes, oh, my God, Deborah. And I look up, and there's a production manager I had worked with, like, six months earlier, and he's like, what are you doing here? Like, what are you doing here? So he was here prepping a movie. Oh, man, that's um, crazy. That's, like, yeah, the definition of a small world. <laughs> it, oh, it truly, truly, truly is. It's a very small Small, small industry. Um, but, you know, I mean, I've been to Paris. I was a huge Hemingway fan, and so I went to Paris and didn't bother with the Louvre or anything like that. I had my map of all the places Hemingway lived and ate and wrote, and so I spent a week just trekking around Paris doing the Hemingway thing. Um, I went down to Greece and just had a great time in Greece. In fact, that was really funny. I went there before my trip to Kenya because I had to, it was actually a layover. And so I, I arrived in Greece in the morning, like pretty early in the morning, threw my stuff in a storage unit there at the airport, and then just started walking around Athens. And I met this guy who was my age, and he started talking to me, and he's like, you know, I, I don't get a chance to speak English to too many people, and I'm studying engineering, and the only English I get to uh, exposed to is in the engineering books. So can I hang out with you? And I thought, yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah. You know? So we um, we spent the day and just kind of traveling around, um, going to different places, and it was really lovely. And then that night, I had to get on a plane, and he said, when are you coming back? And I'm like, I, I really don't know. I don't have a return ticket booked, so I have no idea, but it'll probably be about three weeks. So anyway, I took off, went to Nairobi, and again, didn't come home for three months. <laughs> and when I came back through Greece... I got off the plane, and there was this guy standing there with a bouquet of flowers. I'm like, what are you doing here? He met every single plane coming in from Nairobi from the time I left to the Jeez. time I got back. So that was fun. Though. And so we spent another day just kind of traveling around Athens and seeing all the sights, and it was really fun. So I bet he's telling, he's probably telling a story to somebody right now, but the one that got away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it was just it was just really friendly. Yeah. You know. It was, uh, neither of us were really interested in each other that way. It was just kind of fun to hang out. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Or at least that's what I thought anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, usually usually it's not the case, but maybe. I mean, that is that is cool, though, that he was able to use you as kind of like a, a reminder of home or, you know, just a friend, a familiar, you know? Probably yeah. really helped him a lot. When you were with New Line, you did Nightmare on Elm Street. You said it was like the third in the franchise? I did, yeah, three through seven. Oh, that's great. I forget that there's so many of those things. Would you I say know. that was probably the first like big successful movie you worked on? Uh, yeah, that certainly that I did, because most of the stuff I did before were TV movies. I mean, I did a couple of miniseries that won Emmys. Um, oh, wow, look at you. Dollmaker with Jane Fonda and... Um, something called World War Three. I don't know if that one 
won an Emmy, but um, David Green directed that. He was a huge director in the day. Yeah. So, but the, you know, but as far as the movie goes, yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street Three was the biggest one I had ever done up to that point. What? When you say on set, were you on set like a lot? Did you get to like kind of watch the movie be made, or was it more like behind the scenes? Or well, the way we made movies is our product and new line. I mean, most independent companies do the same thing, but you know, you rent a great big old warehouse, and our warehouse was downtown LA in this just funky, dusty, miserable place, <laughs> and we built all these sets in there. And then we just had our production offices there. So all the activity was going on all around us. Mm -hmm. And we just had our office just right there, which made life a lot easier. So if I need to talk to somebody, I could just walk over to the set. And I could just go over there and watch. But, you know, after a while, there's so much standing around and wait on a movie set. Yeah, it's not as exciting as it sounds probably. as (laughs) one might think. That's so cool, though, because I always thought producers were less involved, not really on the set as much. And I'm sure there maybe there are some aspects of producing or certain producers that are like that. But that's cool. You kind of got to be involved in the industry more. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I, so as I moved up into more of an executive capacity, then I didn't really have to be on set that much. And uh-huh. I always say to people now, as a producer, you know, my job is everything that I do before anybody starts shooting. If I have to be on set by the time we're shooting, I haven't done my job. So as long as I've hired the right people, the minute that camera rolls, everybody knows their job. Everybody is there on time. They're doing what they need to do. The director knows how to deal with the actors. The actors know their lines. The crew knows what's expected of them. And it should work you know, pretty seamlessly. And very often it does. And obviously there's times where things don't work exactly the way you want it to work. And so I'm always available that, you know, I'll show up on set or sometimes I'll even have my office if we're on location at the production offices. Mm -hmm. But um, being on set is sort of boring after a while. Yeah. Because you're just, there's so much waiting around. Right. Which is a little frustrating. But there's a film I'm going to be shooting in probably October. And I'll probably be on set for that just because it's, um, you know, it's a, a very challenging project to do uh-huh. and so I'm going to want to make sure that everything is going well and there to support the director Yeah, um, you were mentioning um, sometimes how it doesn't work or uh, difficult projects what was like maybe like your biggest fiasco have you ever had like just something go terribly wrong or like lose money or actor walking off set or something terrible like that what just throws the production off the rails <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, look, there's always something that's going to throw a monkey wrench into the process. But, you know, I always consider my job to be, uh, you know, I figure out what the problems could possibly be and then fix them before they become a problem. Yeah. So I'm always trying to proactively look forward to see what could be an issue. But, you know, we've had actors that just showed up on set completely wasted. Um, <laughs> there was one project... And it actually worked out really well. He was just, he was a big star, big name, but this is way back in the 80s. But he had a massive drug problem. And so the director was brilliant. He said, stick him in a wheelchair. He had an accident. He was supposed to be limping. It's like, get him in a wheelchair. He no longer can walk. And so 
that's he did the entire show from the wheelchair. <laughs> so if he was slouched over or looked like he was drugged out, it fit with his character. It's so <laughs> funny. It's right it into the movie. Yeah, one time we had an actor who refused to wear the clothes that we had gotten. The wardrobe designer was like flipping out because he wouldn't come to set. It was in his trailer because he only wore. I can't remember the, na- the exact name, but it was like he only wore Armani suits. Yeah, like a designer. And um, and so she was brilliant. She had her PA run out and get a bunch of underwear or something, something cheap, ties yeah. or something that were Armani. And <laughs> they ran back, took all the labels off the Armani ties and sewed it into the suit jacket. Oh, how funny. And he never knew the difference. <laughs> it was it's, it was a matter of comfort and perception. And, yeah. You know, he didn't want to be thought of as being, you know, wearing a, a cheap knockoff suit. He was a star and he only wore this. You know, so, you know, you're not trying to necessarily be, um, lie about that kind of stuff. But, you know, the show must go on, as they say. So you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. And so, you know, so there's always little things like that. I mean, yeah, of course, you know, you've got issues where it starts to rain. And then I would, I've shot a lot in Georgia, especially like I've done a couple of movies in Savannah. And as soon as you hear thunder, everything shuts down. You've got to <laughs> That's put crazy. the equipment down. And, you know, and so you're, you can't afford to have a film crew of 60, 70 80 people sometimes standing around doing nothing because it's very expensive. So yeah. you just have to be prepared to do things. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the craziest things that have happened. That is crazy uh, how expensive movies have gotten, though. Like, yeah, you talk about how you have so many people involved that if it stops for a minute, all those people are still getting paid and it can really add up. That's just crazy to think about how, how yeah, much money is it involved. Really is. I mean, shooting time is the most expensive thing, and so you just have to be super pre- super planned, super prepped. Right. And, you know, I work very closely with the assistant director, who is the first AD, is the person on set who's managing the time and moving things forward. And so I always like to make sure if something's not working, uh, we have some alternative to go to, something else to shoot, something, some pickup shots or something to make good use of the time so that we're not wasting that energy but you know the crews that I've worked with I'm always so lucky I get these amazing crew people and very often if you look at them and say okay we got a problem here they will come through and figure out what the solution is certainly far better than I'm going to I usually just present the issue (laughs) yeah (laughs) all right guys here's where we're at this is what we need to do. Yeah, because you forget um, about the crew because, I mean, you see the actors on screen, you think about the directors and the producers, but there are a lot of people just on set making that movie from the food people to the riggers or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, so many of these crew people have done it 20, 30 years. A lot of them, you know, of course there's new people, but, you know, they've been around long enough to have seen just about everything you can throw at them and they yeah. know what solution is and if you treat them well and if they know that they're respected um then they will generally step up to the plate and just make it happen you know and there's always sometimes you know there's a difficult director or difficult cinematographer or something that should you know it's making life miserable for everybody (laughs) you know that makes it tough because the crew gets a little pissed off and yeah, it's hard to keep that balance because you still, as a producer, you still have to support the creative team. You have to support the director and make sure they're getting their vision on screen. Mm-hmm. But when they're the problem, 
that's when it's uh you know it takes some real what's the word i'm looking for uh, magic you know, movie magic yes <laughs> finagling too. Yeah. that's where i think having been a parent the, the best first ad i ever worked with she was just awesome and I, this was very early in my days uh, being in the film business but I recognized how she just got the crew to do anything she wanted they just adored her and they would just snap to it she said hey guys we're going to lose the light or we're running late or you know we got to hit the lunch hour because you got to cut otherwise you incur penalties and I went up to her one day and I'm like god how do you do that you're like so amazing they just love you and she's like I trained for five years for this business he said it was the best training I could ever have had. And I'm like, oh, my God, what, did you go to film school? What did you do? She's like, oh, no, I taught kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good so, preparation for that. It was great. That's She's funny. like, I just learned how to manage people, <laughs> get them to do what they need to do in spite of themselves. Yeah, that is a tough job, wrangling 35-year-olds. That's crazy. That's got to <laughs> yeah. be good preparation. Yeah. So have you ever – have you ever – gone into different parts of the industry or wanted to or thought about it like writing uh, directing anything like that uh you know not really i mean i've sort of found my lane i'm really good at overseeing i'm really good at understanding the money my mantra for 30 years has been protect the money yeah so that's always been my job is to make sure the film is done on time on budget so um, that's really where I shine. I, you know, there's story ideas that I would love to tell because I love telling stories. I'm an avid reader, and so literature yeah. was always my first love, and I love a good story. So, you know, there might be a day where, you know, I might collaborate with somebody who's a screenwriter right. and have them, you know, sort of help put my vision down. But, you know, I also have a lot of respect for good screenwriters because screenwriting is the most difficult literary format you could possibly ever want to write. It's so highly nuanced. Yeah, it sure is. So difficult to do. Yeah, I read the um, Screenwriter's Bible, and that book is just crazy. It's so, so complicated. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it but, really sim is. but simple at the same time. It's it's weird. Well, if you, if you understand that a screenplay is nothing more than a blueprint for what ends up being a visual piece of art work. Um, it makes it a lot easier because people get so like they get stuck in the scene or the description or the dialogue. And it's like, no, no, no. Those are just uh, suggestions. Yeah. You got to kind of start with the skeleton of it and then yeah. fill in that stuff later. And, you know, and it's all about the theme. You know, when yeah. I ask people, what's your screenplay about? And they start telling me, well, it's about this person who goes there and does this, whatever. It's like, no, 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 no. That's, I could care less about that. What's it about? What's the message you want to tell me? What am I supposed to take away from your story when I've read it? Yeah. That's what it's about. Yeah, like in the screenwriter's Bible, it said, like, if you're writing and you can't figure out a line of dialogue, just don't write anything. Just keep going. Like, it's not even really a big part of it. You just got to tell the story, you know? No, it really is. But, the dialogue is, is, I don't want to say it's secondary because there's some great dialogue writers who just, the dialogue is brilliant. So yeah. When it all comes together, it's important. But, you know, the old adage movies or books are about what people think and plays are about what people say and movies are about what people do. Yeah. So a movie is a visual medium. So right. if you can't tell the story with a minimum of dialogue, you're not doing your job right. You should be able to see this image on the screen and understand what's happening it should be you know the dialogue should come in and punctuate the scene yeah it shouldn't be the 
you know, focus of the scene. Yeah. So you had mentioned a few big names that I'd like to get into a little bit before we wrap up. Um, you said you did the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the like live action one? Uh, yeah, the, the early ones back in the oh, early man. 90s. That is like one of my favorite. I love it though. That's so funny. What what you did just producing and accounting on that movie too? So, no accounting. By then I was head of production. So, oh, okay. Um, as head of production for New Line, physical production. So my job was they would hand me a script and with a director usually and a star and then I would take that script and those elements and go make them a movie and turn around and give them back a completed product. Oh, wow. So that was my job, was to take it from script to delivery, basically, you know, a finished film. So the first and time so, you read a script like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you got to just laugh that off, right? That seemed like a bad script at first. Um, <laughs> no, the script actually was pretty good. It was, the whole package was pretty good. We no, got yeah, pretty it's a great movie. It yeah. fairly packaged, um, and they were having trouble getting um, the balance of their financing, and so New Line stepped in to finish, you know, basically give them the rest of the money that they needed. So my job was simply to oversee what was going on and making sure that the money was being spent appropriately and looking at, the, you know, all the cost reports and dailies and things like that the footage to make sure that it was being legitimately handled. But um, when they first approached us with that project, they went to uh, Bob Shea, who owned the company, and he was like, you want to do a movie about a bunch of skateboarding turtles that eat pizza? It sounds so <laughs> bad like, on paper. Are you insane? <laughs> That's what I'm no. saying. <laughs> and there were two individuals. There was the president of distribution and the woman who was president of New Line Productions at the time, who both had 12, 9 to 12-year-old sons. And they were like, if you don't do this movie, we'll hand you our resignations right now. You oh, need wow. to do these. And so he had the you know the guts to say well okay i don't get it but i trust my people and yeah so cause, we made those movies and obviously they were yeah super successful they were a big deal before the movie i think some people don't realize that that they think the movie was like their start but they were very popular in toys and comics oh, already yeah the cartoons have been cartoons for yeah years and yeah, years so and years i love that movie so <laughs> that movie's so and, good yeah no there was a long history um, long before we made the movies, absolutely. So you, I saw in your, all right, we've talked about before too, you also worked on uh, Dumb and Dumber, another one of my favorites, and you said you read the script for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and it was pretty good, but I remember you telling a story about not liking Dumb and Dumber when you read it. Yeah, so um, we had had that script in-house for about nine months and nobody really was all that excited about it. Um, there was the one development executive and he was the, it was his passion project, so he was constantly pushing it, but we were busy doing so many other projects and we were in the middle of, um, we were producing The Mask and The Mask was the one that I absolutely loved. And we oh, yeah, had been I trying to, to get that, that off that the ground too. for five years, but the technology didn't exist. So we had ILM uh, at the time trying to come up with some of the visual effects that would create the Tex Avery kind of, um, you know, characters that needed to be in, embedded into the live action part of that. Yeah. Anyway, so the, somebody, you know, Bob, I think it was Bob Shea said in the meeting, look, if we can make that movie for, I don't know, three, four million dollars, let's consider it because there's another company who's wanting to make it. Uh -huh. 
And so we were all looking at each other, the heads of the departments going, eh. <laughs> so, so I took the script and I went, all right, I'll read. Because I had read it like nine months earlier and just wasn't all that crazy about it. But I took it home and I started reading it. I was about 30 pages into it and I just, I could not get past it. It was the dumbest thing I'd ever read in my life. So I threw the script on the coffee table in my living room and walked out of the room. And about a half hour later, I hear this thud from the living room floor. And I go running into the living room. And there's my husband on the floor. He's holding his stomach. He's laughing so hard, he can't breathe. <laughs> and I just went, oh, my God, I'm going to have to make this movie. Um, That's so funny. So, so I got into the office the next day. And, and the people who had read the script were all shaking their heads going, Jeez, we're gonna have to make this unbelievable. <laughs> um, but you know, of course, we <laughs> we did it. And it was right around that same time that Mike Delitha, who is you know head of development at the time, um, was on set for The Mask, and he and Jim Carrey were talking, and he said, you know, there's this script that maybe you'd like. So he gives him the script for Dumb and Dumber while he's sitting on the mask, and which he wasn't a big star. The mask hadn't come out yet, yeah. and um, Ace Ventura hadn't opened yet. Yeah. So uh, by the next weekend, you know, Jim had become a big star. He loved Dumb and Dumber. He signed on, and that's all she wrote. We were moving full speed ahead on that project. That's so crazy to think. Um, I guess it always comes down to this sort of thing in life, but like just that one or two people if they had thought differently or not done it, like that movie might never have been made or made differently or made later. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, you know, there's so many people asking, how do I get my script made in Hollywood? It's like, God, there's so many, so many stars that have to align for anything to happen. You know, even to this day, it's like, you know, the strangest, the, the strangest reasons that movies get made. I mean, we would, read wonderful scripts that we couldn't make because the numbers didn't work or they just didn't you know a lesser a lesser well-written script would not get made because it wasn't the right genre we were we were pretty much making genre movies back then either horror or thriller you know we did a lot yeah. of urban films at the time yeah and a great drama would come through and we'd be like oh god we love it but it's just not our it's not a sure thing i mean Every third movie I did with New Line was an out-of-the-park home run. That's crazy. So we had a pretty good run there for quite some time. When you do a movie like that, you say you kind of bring everything together. Were you ever involved in, like, deciding who's going to be in it? Not, I guess not casting, but you ever have to say, like, we have to get this guy attached for this to be made? Oh, yeah. And, I mean, and, and I do so much of that now um, because still stars are a little less important now than they were back in the day, but they're still a very important piece of the puzzle because, I mean, you probably do it when you're going through Netflix or Amazon or whatever. If you're looking through titles and, and posters and you don't see a recognizable face on that, you know, chances are you're not going to stop on it. But if you see suddenly Mark Wahlberg on the poster or if you see <laughs> somebody you recognize, it's like, oh, let's see what that movie's That's about. That's so funny that you say Mark Wahlberg because he always makes me stop on Netflix. I love his movies. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> yeah, if he's in it, I'll be like, all right, I'll give it a try because he's in it. That's so true. That's funny. So, you know, it's it's it was much more important back then. And so we would typically... The way it would work is we had a formula, and the foreign international salespeople would give me a number. The movie was worth to them X, Y, and Z, and the television salespeople would say, okay, it's worth X to them. 
And at the time, the DVD salespeople would say, okay, it's worth this much to me. Uh-huh. And so we would add up those numbers, and whatever that number was, say, let's just say it was $6 million, um, Bob Shea would look at me and say, okay, make the movie for three. Yeah. And then the great, you know, the theatrical was all gravy. Yeah. So we just learned really quickly how to make really good movies for half the price of what you thought you could make them for. We got very, and again, I had amazing crews that I just kept employed for, you know, nine years. Yeah. And I would just try and use as many of the same crew over and over because they knew what we wanted to do and they knew how to accomplish it in as short amount of time as possible. Well, yeah, you so almost we were, find a formula at one point, right? Yeah. It's like you've got exactly. the secret potion. Yeah, and it, it really was. It was the formula, and we just made movies for a, you know, less than break even. And then anytime they worked theatrically, it all went into the profits. Yeah, that's so cool. It was, it was good. Well, like with movies like The Mask, you say like that was before Jim Carrey was a household name. How does he get into something like The Mask? Um, well, that one was, there was a, a director who really wanted to direct that movie. And he had worked for us once before, and we weren't exactly fond of him, but anyway, uh, (laughs) he was, I won't go into it, but he um, really wanted to do the mask, and there were a couple of department heads that just said, absolutely not, we're not working with him again, ever, just don't want to do that. But he brought Bob Shea to a comedy club one night, and there was Jim Carrey, who was doing In Living Color. Uh-huh. And he said, this is the guy that should be doing the mask. And he was right. I mean, I'll give him credit. Right. He was absolutely right. And so Bob Shea came back and said, I think uh, I think this could work. And at the same time, ILM had uh, come up with a couple of ways to do some of the visual effects that we needed. So again, the stars all aligned. Yeah, because I heard like a Hollywood rumor or whatever. Maybe I heard it from you. I don't know, but like that, the mask sat on the shelf for a long time, right? Not just because of oh yeah, not just because Five of years. special effects, but also because of the lead the lead actor. That's hard to yeah. find, right? We could not find the lead, um, <laughs> somebody who's appropriate, and you know, trying to find the leading lady. I mean, we looked at so many actresses to try and pull that off. Oh yeah, um, because she wasn't famous either, right? Um, no, she had never acted at all. She was a model, what's... and the producer. Uh, Bob Engelman and the casting director Fern Champion were watching the Academy Awards one night and they it was there was some sort of tribute being given I think it was to Bob Hope or somebody and it was a line of models on either side and Fern looked at the TV and said you see that girl about three rows down that look that she's got that's what we need we need something that looks just like her and Bob Engelman, the producer, said, just get her. <laughs> we were all so tired of, try- of looking at tapes and interviewing actors or whatever. And so they tracked her down, and it was Cameron Diaz, and she had never, ever acted before. She came in, and she did a, a reading, and she was brilliant and amazing. And the director didn't really want her um, initially. He had somebody else in mind. Uh-huh. But... Uh, we finally went to Bob Shea, and Bob said, no, she's she's totally right for it. And, of course, the rest is history. Yeah, that's crazy. So it was really the yeah, producer it's... and the casting director <laughs> that discovered her and found her and yeah. made it work. Yeah, because I love that movie, too. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. Never thought someday my aunt-in-law would have had a hand in some of my favorite movies. It's kind of funny. <laughs> um, but that's crazy, too, because you talk about how, like, the star does help 
Um, but like for that movie, for instance, they weren't stars yet. You know, like the star has to be made at some point, and that's crazy that you were involved in kind of making those things happen. Yeah, well, at the time, the star of that movie was going to be the visual effects because it was so out there. Yeah, and, that makes sense. You know, and it was a really good script, and it was really fun. And again, as a genre movie, it was a you know sort of a an offbeat comedy. Yeah. Um, which we had done a couple of those and had a modicum of success with those, and so we were able to do that and again. We were making these movies for very little money, comparatively speaking. Right. That so we were able to take a, a bit of a chance with that and because that was such a passion movie for everyone in the company we all knew what we had we just loved it yeah um and it was just a matter of finding the right components to put it together so that it would turn out the way it turned out which was great still one of my favorite movies well Love please it. please tell me you weren't involved in the horrible sequel oh god <laughs> no those are so, that's the kind of movie that never should have had a sequel i know it's just <laughs> But what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, all you can do is try, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Well, so. usually if the star is not involved, you don't want to be involved a, in the second There's one. a reason why. <laughs> right? Well, what do you... Um, so you do the same work now. Do you have any projects you're working on now that you're really interested in? Um, yeah, I've got a couple of projects. So, you know, I've pretty much just been producing and or doing financial consulting for the last 10 years. Uh-huh. Um, especially as the kids were growing up. I mean, I did something really insane in Hollywood, which was um, I decided to raise my own children. <laughs> so right. I, I left New Line when I had an infant and a two-year-old. Oh, okay. Um, so that's when you that's when you left yeah. New Line is to I'm try to start your time. family. Yeah. That's so cool. So I did that. took some time and really enjoyed it. And I needed a break. I mean, I've been making movies and, you know, it's a pretty hectic pace for yeah. You know, probably 15 years That's by then. wild, yeah. Um, so I decided to do that, and then eventually went into academia. So I went over to Loyola Marymount Film School and uh, realized after a couple of years that if I wanted to deal with inflated egos and accelerated sense of self and temper tantrums and all the above, I might as well go back to the film business and get paid for it. <laughs> right. So. That's funny. <laughs> went back into filmmaking and um, again because I knew so much about how a movie is put together from a financial standpoint I was able to do a lot of financial consulting for people and help them put those deals together and then you know produce things that um, I feel good about I'm, I actually just started a new company called Sand Dollar Films with some people that I've known for quite some time so we're doing movies that are sort of uplifting and fun and um, I want to do movies that are more geared towards um, middle school kids. I'm doing a couple of book adaptations dealing with some of the local, you know, bigger book publishers and some of their legacy titles. So that's going to be kind of fun. And then I'm doing a project in China um, in August of next year, hopefully, fingers crossed, if it all comes together, um, which is the story of Ruth Harkness, who is the first person to ever bring a live giant panda out of China. Oh, wow. And she did this, yeah, she was like heralded as this hero, and she did this amazing thing, only to figure out that what she did was she opened a Pandora's box, and on her heels of having done this, all these adventurers thought, oh, we can do that. So they went into China and decimated quite a bit of the panda population, so she spent the rest of her life trying to champion on behalf of the pandas and helped 
with the Chinese, worked with the Chinese government to set up sanctuaries and whatever. So it's a really beautiful story. It's uh, written by the same woman who wrote Gorillas in the Mist. Oh, okay. So it's, it's like a um, documentary or? Oh, no. no. No, no. It's a feature film. Oh, okay. That's, so, that yeah, sounds, that sounds really, really interesting. Yeah, it's a really, really, it's um, based on her actual letters that she wrote back to her best friend over the course of many, many years oh, okay. of doing this. So, That's cool. you know, she was a, a, a conflicted character, which I love, uh-huh. um, but at the same time, you know, a hero at the end. So, so yeah, there's some, you know, some fun stuff, some fun things on the horizon. Would you say you're doing more work now or less like do you kind of just take it easy and do what kind of comes along or do you still have to make sure you're biting at the apple every day or yeah i think my last day off was somewhere in may of last year Um, (laughs) it's uh it's pretty 24 7 but that's because i love what i do so i'm constantly reading scripts or reading manuscripts books screenplays and then trying to put projects together and i still during the whole covid thing i was doing uh budgets for people and putting together finance plans and business plans and whatever. And so now that I have this new entity that I'm dealing with, you know, it's a lot of meetings and reaching out to people and trying to let people know what I'm doing and try and put these deals together. So, but, uh, you know, there was a couple of moments there during the quarantine that I was able to kick back, but for the most part, I've been keeping pretty busy. Yeah, because it's not the kind of job you exactly retire from, right? Because you can kind of do a little bit of it here and there probably for a while. Yeah, you know, you just continue to develop. And and every script I read, I'm going to have some input on. It's like, you know, I'm a big stickler for structure. Not that I think structure is the be-all and end-all, but there are ways to tell a story. Having read thousands of screenplays, you know, I think I've developed over a period of time a sense of timing and pacing and whatever. So I like to work with screenwriters and try and get the right components in place. And, uh, you know, which doesn't always work. Sometimes, you know, you try and make as good a movie as you can and it doesn't work. But it's, you know, not from lack of trying on everybody's part. So so have you ever read a screenplay uh, by like a newer person or anybody really where you're where it's just really bad? Like you're just like, uh, maybe you shouldn't be in this <laughs> business or anything. Or, or are they all like, because I figure by the time they get to you, they got to be something decent. Yeah, you'd be surprised. I mean, everybody thinks they can write a screenplay. And, (laughs) you know, there was a period of time there where I would read a lot of screenplays. And after about, you know, 90% of them were just where you just want to say, just go read a screenplay, a, a book about screenwriting. Just read one book and you'll see what the inherent problems are with this story. Yeah. But, you know, everybody's like, no, 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 the story's perfect and this is the way it happened. It's like, I don't care. <laughs> it's not a screenplay. It's not going to work. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm a huge advocate of working with good writers because good writers, I mean, they spend months and months and months agonizing over the first act. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, they'll, they really do their homework. And again, it's such a highly nuanced art form and it's so complicated people think it's the easiest thing in the world it's not it is so much more difficult to write a screenplay than it is to write a a novel yeah because everything has to count you're very limited in your time and space on the page yeah and so every single word has to have some specific meaning and you've got to make sure that everything pays off and there's follow-through on everything you add in there and so often you know novice writers they'll 
they'll write these scenes because the scenes are kind of fun and cool and kitschy and you're like but what was the point why did why did we have that scene in there what happens if you make a movie like that so much of that stuff ends up on the cutting room floor yeah and you've just wasted all that time and money shooting it and it'll never be seen yeah that's crazy so so uh, you know it's hard i mean i'm always looking for really good writers and every now and then you'll find somebody who's super creative and they're not that great with structure but they're open to collaborating um and i love working with those people the super creative types that you know like look i I don't have any idea how to put this all together but here's what i got (laughs) right great let's let's go at this yeah they're kind of malleable or kind of moldable yeah because you know that's the one thing that everybody has to remember the film business is nothing more than the most collaborative art form you could possibly imagine because uh, you know every single person is going to have a hand in that final product you know we say the script is written initially it's written it get rewritten when you're shooting and it's completely rewritten when you're editing yeah and the final product ideally is something that has gone through so many hands and fine-tuned and some people say you know writers often say it's screwed up but uh yeah that's what i was going to say at the end sometimes the screenwriter hates it right because <laughs> yeah. it's changed so much from their original script you know, if there's one story that I always love to tell writers um, to give them hope. Uh, there was a project um, that we made at New Line. It was called Eight Seconds. And the original script came to us. It was in what we call Turnaround from Fox, meaning that Fox had had it for a number of years and they decided they're not going to make the movie. So we bought it because it was a pretty cool story. And there were 16 rewrites that had been done on this screenplay. And so we got the final screenplay and uh again mike deluca who was amazing and you know mike there's he's one of a kind when it comes to looking at the essence of what makes a screenplay work and he asked the original writer can i see your original script i just want to kind of have in your in my head what you were originally thinking uh-huh. and so we hired john albinson he was going to direct it we're about three weeks away from shooting the entire crew is down in texas where we shot it and Mike called Avelson and said, hey, there's this one scene in the original script that I would love to put into this version that we're shooting. If you wouldn't mind, can I just send you that scene? And Avelson said, why, you know, just send me the whole script. Let me just kind of look at it in context. So he read the script over the weekend and then called Mike and said, are, are you people insane? This is the movie we should be making. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that's what we did. We scrubbed everything else, went back to the original screenplay, and that's the movie we made. That's cool. So, most of the time that doesn't happen, but yeah. I'm sure that writer was pretty, <laughs> yeah. pretty thrilled that, gotta his, be cool to his, see that. His, fi- his work was finally recognized. <laughs> so, you know. That's crazy. I still can't believe you were in Kenya for three months. It's so cool. You're so much you're so much cooler than I am. And that's your takeaway from this whole conversation. <laughs> you are cool. I have to say, I have to say that is that was the highlight of the last like 30 years for me was that trip. It was a magical trip and everything that I did was just amazing. Have you ever thought and, of going uh, back or you know, is that I where have, you want to retire? But, you know, <laughs> Yeah, it's like one of those things I'd love to go back, but you know when you have this unbelievably perfect trip for three months, nothing yeah. went wrong. Yeah. You're almost afraid to go back. Right, just leave it like that. Yeah. Yeah, leave like, it in the memories. I, I want that memory. So. I, I just had one more question before we wrap this up. Were you ever? Have you ever been on screen? 
or have you ever wanted to be or ever like an extra or anything fun like that? Okay, so we started a conversation by saying, why don't you have your picture on your Facebook? <laughs> no. <laughs> never wanted to be on screens, ever. Okay. Never. No interest whatsoever. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> All right, well, that ties back to the beginning, like a good script, so we'll leave it at that then. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on my show. I hope you enjoyed it a little bit at least. Oh, I love talking to you. Are you kidding? It's fun. Always. Well, would you look at that? An episode that actually ended properly. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate the show, and tell a friend. Stay tuned for next week's episode when I interview a great friend of mine, Adam, all the way from Canada. Thanks again for listening, and be kind to each other.